Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Jude, and it's good to see everyone. You know, um, it's a privilege to be given an opportunity to teach again. So the last time I was up here, uh, it was quite a lot of text, and my internal keyword back then was discipline, because we are such a small amount of time to go through quite a lot of text. And today, again, we have quite a lot of text. We are continuing our look through the book of Luke. Today, we're looking at chapter 13, oh, chapter 17. Chapter 17. So um, let's make a start. So the chapter is divided into five sections. There is temptation to sin, increase our faith on worthy servants. Jesus cleanses ten lepers and the coming of the kingdom. We're going to step through, okay, reading uh, portions uh, portions at the time. And I am going to read from the ESV. Just before we start, also going through, through this and studying, reading commentaries and the text, it's quite a challenging text, personally for me. And when the Word of God speaks to you, it's important to dwell on it, keep it in your heart, and to make sure that we fulfill the message that is being passed. So let's, let's, let's start. So 17, chapter 17, Luke 17, let's read, please. We're going to step through at a time. So let's first of all go through the first four temptations to sin. And I read. And he said to, to his disciples, temptation to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. This follows on from the, the later stages of chapter 16, uh, where we look at the story of Lazarus and the rich man, where Jesus was teaching that eternity is real. Eternity is real, and so are the rewards of how we have lived. So how we live right now matters. And Jesus is saying, don't be like the rich man who regretted his life choices and then could no longer make amends. There is a big warning here about temptations to sin. But other versions have words like offenses stumbling blocks to sin, or things that cause people to stumble. 
Jesus is saying that these things are unavoidable, but watch yourself so you are not leading someone else to sin. Implicitly, the text recognizes that man has fallen. The world is corrupted, and so temptations are unavoidable. We need to avoid being the one that leads or causes or cause others to fall to sin. We need to watch ourselves. Remember that we are called to be the light and salt of the world, for the world. We need to be the one that is leading others to Christ. But there's also a severe warning about those who cause others to sin. Whether this is through persecution or seduction or false teaching, we know there's quite a lot of that. Or those claiming to be Christian, but the lifestyle doesn't reflect the example of Christ. Quite a lot of those as well. In fact, quite a lot of everyone. Quite a lot of everything. And the metaphor of a millstone is meant to represent the guilt that arises from those who cause others to sin. It's around them. They can't escape it. In Matthew 18, it's equally explicit, but it comes at it from a different angle, saying that take yourselves from anything that causes you to sin, whether it's your hand, your foot, even your eye. The message here is that it is better to deprive yourself of something that is temporal. Something for a little while. Rather than let yourself be deprived of the eternal salvation. What if someone sins against you, tempting you? Even then, pay attention to yourself. Rebuke your brother if he sins against you. Be the one that is leading them to, to Christ and to Christ-likeness. If you must rebuke, rebuke in love with the aim of restoring the relationship and that we shouldn't fall into the trap of retaliation, which is very easy to do. Because those things cause us to fall into sin. Forgive him if he repents. The sisters are saying, okay, that's just him. <laughs> Forgive her if she repents. It's a command. Looking at that, Right there, forgive, it, forgive them if, if, if they repent. We're back at that provocative parable. Pastor E did a fantastic job taking us through the prodigal son. I say it's provocative because if you look at that text, trying to go through it, immerse yourself with the mindset of the Jews at the time you realize that almost every word, in, almost every sentence in that parable is provocative. 
It goes against the norms. It goes against what is expected. It goes against honor. And we're looking at it on the part of the son, the younger son. You know, just right from, right from the word go, saying to his father, give me my inheritance, my share of inheritance. I don't care about you, nothing about love, nothing about honor. Give it to me. That's provocative. And you can just imagine the Jews of the day saying, this is absolutely outrageous. And then the next line, the father used to it. That's provocative. They were like, what's going on here? This is madness. But it doesn't get easier. The son takes his inheritance, goes to a faraway land, spends everything living wildly. Provocative. All that the father had gathered, whether through inheritance and through the labors of his own hands, just wasted, provocative. But it doesn't get even any, it doesn't get easier. You know? And then there's a famine and he's hungry, doesn't have anything. So he has to now go into service to feed pigs for somebody else. A Jew feeding pigs? Provocative. And you can just imagine the Pharisees of the day hearing the Sadducees hearing it. You could just feel that smoke would be coming out of their ears. A Jew? But it doesn't get easier. And then he wishes that somebody will give him the food that is given to the pigs. A Jew? You can just imagine people saying, you know what? I'm out. I'm out. But finally, he saw after he was down to zero, he realized that he was wrong, came back. He had sinned against heaven and earth. He repented. The father forgives him. But Jesus, being the master storyteller that he is, left something crucial, left something out at the end. I mean, and the Jews of the day, they would have got to it much quicker than you and I just going through. Because right at the end, you realize when the older son sees all that is happening, saying, oh, you know what, this is not right. And the father counseled him, you know what, your brother was dead, but now he's alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. And that's where the parable ends. You realize that Jesus left something out. Because we do not know the heart of the older brother right at the end. And that sets up the very subtle cliffhanger. What happens when the father dies? What would the older son do? What would you do? Would you do what the father advised? Forgive as the father showed. Or give the son, give the brother what he deserved. 
justice. Because he had broken the law. That was what he deserved. Being sinned against, we've all been there. You know, someone offends us. Oh, you know what? After all, after she did all that, after he did all that, and then he came to me and then he said, I'm sorry. He didn't mean it, you know. I'm sorry. I've got to give him a word. He needs to hear it. Give him a piece of my mind. Oh, he's been on my chest for a long time. I've just been holding it. I've just been holding it. Well, there's nothing wrong with a piece of your mind, but will it lead them towards Christ and salvation, or are we just letting off steam, the steam of anger? What if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times they ask for forgiveness? Seven times? You mean in the space of a day? 24 hours? Well, by the time someone sees the first time, the second time, the third time, you want to say, you know what, bro? You're being a donkey. <laughs> Seriously, you know? What do you think I am? Seven times? No, 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 no. You don't mean it. No, but God said, Christ is saying, don't judge their repentance. The command from Christ is to forgive. It's to forgive. Let's move on. Uh, reading 5 to 6. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Difficult teaching. As I was saying when I, you know, I studied, the disciples, when they realized the gravity of what Christ is saying, what he's teaching on forgiveness, they knew that they couldn't do it in their own strength. They needed more faith. One of the commentators was saying that Jesus has not narrowed the scope of when you can forgive. It's not about when it's convenient or when we feel like it or when we think that somebody deserves it and then we forgive. You know what? Oh, what she did was so deep. I got to give it time. Give it time, give it time, give it time. You know, the commentator is saying that Jesus widened the scope. He says, forgive when the other person repents, even when they sin against us time and again, and they repent time and again. The disciples here recognize that we can't love those that in our eyes are unlovable. 
difficult statement. And we can't forgive those that, in our eyes, are unforgivable. Sometimes people do stuff that just, you know, it's just too much. Too deep. They've been doing it for a long time. They've been getting away with it. Disciples realize to be Christ-like, we need more faith. We need faith. But the metaphors here, the mustard seed and mulberry tree, are quite interesting. Mustard seeds, quite tiny, represent the presence of faith. No matter how small, especially when it is small, almost insignificant. Mulberry tree, on the other hand, represents an offense that's committed, that has taken hold, gaining roots, that helps the offense to withstand all seasons and even different kinds of environment, just like a mulberry tree does. It means that somebody has done something and we just cannot let it go. No matter how much we try, seasons come, seasons go. It's still there. The roots are there. And every time we see the person, every time we're in, the same, in a similar scenario, we know it's there. The implication here is that the metaphors, well, with those two, is that if you have a tiny amount of faith, you can uproot even that offense that are taking root. And yet again, Jesus completely takes apart human wisdom and understanding. Now, if Jesus had affirmed the reasoning of his disciples that you need a lot of faith to be able to do this, increase our faith so that we can do this. If Jesus had said, yeah, you need a lot of faith to be able to love those that appear unlovable, to forgive those that you find it difficult to forgive. If you need a lot of faith for it, it means then that you'll be doing that in your own strength because you've got to wait for that time when you just amass so much faith that you're spiritually, you're mature. You're like, you know, you know. So strong spiritually that now, yeah, okay, let's have a talk about that thing. That thing you did, yeah, back in when? Yeah, 1980? Yeah, yeah, that time. I'll let it go now. <laughs> yeah, it was a long time ago, but you know what? It was so bad. It was deep. How could you say that? How could you do that? How could you? How could you? But Jesus is saying that just the presence of the t- smallest amount of faith is enough 
because then it will strengthen us to love them. It will strengthen us to forgive in his name. It will teach us, help us to show grace individually and corporately as a church. Let's move on, please, 7 to 10. And I read ESV. Will any of you who has a servant plowing and keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline our table? Will he not rather, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you have, you are commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. It's again the continuation of his teaching to disciples. The overall point is that we need to be humble in our service. Don't allow pride to creep into your heart, thinking that you are more than you are. Because there's always more work to be done, more service to be done. And in the context of the text we had read prior, there can be more love that we can show. There can be more forgiveness that we can give. There's more to be done. And that's contrary to the mindset today where you have to blow your own trumpet. You can't allow no nonsense. You've got to give yourself a better image. You've got to glorify yourself. You know? It's about self-importance. Praise yourself and demand that you are praised. Look at it, you realize that the heart of man is a deconstruction of his image. The exact opposite. The image is superficially golden, but the heart is spiritually rotten. The metaphor of a servant continuing to work, moving from one task to another, in service to his master, shows two things. It's a reminder that God has done more for us than we can ever do for him. And also that there is always more work to be done. We can't rest. Yes, Lord, I've done enough now. Just time off. Yeah, just waiting for time in glory. Done enough. Done my part. It's up to the others. It's up to Harriet. We can't prove our worth to him by the amount of work that we do. Whether by showing love, forgiving others, laboring to bring others to Christ, or even in love, in love suffering, trials, tribulation, temptation that, that we endure. No, we can't. We are unworthy servants. And we have only done what was our duty. Keeping track of the time. Let's move on, please. Uh, 11 to 19. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. 
And as he entered the village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Yes, Master. No, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This story happened between the borders of Samaria and Galilee. The implication there is that the lepers were a mix of Jews and Samaritans. Reading texts like like this, it's it's helpful, important to immerse ourselves in it. It's very easy to gloss over the uh, the predicaments of the time. Very easy. It's unlikely that they were born as lepers. Unlikely. So they must have had families, positions in their families in Samaria and most probably for the Jews in Galilee. But no matter what what position they had, they were all brought low by their leprosy. They were now outcasts and vagrants. They had lost everything. Their families, positions, whatever work or jobs they were doing, respect, dignity. They lost everything. And as lepers, they would have had to depend on handouts from families and public the only company that they could keep was with each other. Nobody else. That was the law and custom. They were unclean. The use of the word uh, leprosy here that was used covers a variety of skins and bodily ailments. It's not just the conventional one which we talk about today, which affects the skin, the nerves, and membranes. The conventional, we know that over, over time, slowly, it causes it causes numbness, problems with vision that could lead to blindness. It causes weakness in muscles and paralysis, and sufferer slowly becomes crippled. They're disfigured. Overall, they would die earlier. And this mix of Jews and Samaritans were united in their predicament. They stood at a distance according to the law and custom because they were unclean, as I said. And they had to be prevented from making others unclean. Their cry, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. That was their cry. They were saying that we have suffered enough. 
We've lost everything. We've roamed the city outskirts enough. We have carried this shame enough. We have labored enough. Have mercy on us. Deliver us. The response from the Christ was go unusual. Go and show yourselves to the priest. Very unusual. That, that is in reference to Leviticus chapter 13, chapter 13 and 14, which narrates the priest being the gatekeeper of confirming who is leprous and who has been cleansed and any sacrifices that are associated with them being cleansed. The Jews among them would have instantly understood what Jesus was referencing under the law. But it's important to know that asking them to show themselves to the priest does not directly imply healing. It doesn't. But they would have also remembered the story of Naaman, who was the commander of the army of the king of Syria, in 2 King chapter 5, that was healed by Elisha. They came to Jesus because they knew that he could heal them on this spot. There would have been doubts. Why is he asking us to do this? What if we don't see him again for months, possibly years? <laughs> Remember, they were excluded from society. But then the Jews among them would have understood the importance of obedience Whatever he tells you to do, as Mary said, do it. And as they went, they were healed. All of them. That was, that's the text. All of them healed. Now, going through their predicament, the significance to them is huge. I mean, we've always, we sometimes hear about people saying, well, you know what? If this were to happen, it would mean the world to me. If that were to happen, it would mean everything. But for them to be healed, to be restored to their families, restored to society, to whatever work they were doing, to have respect back, dignity, to them, it is Literally everything. But only one of them, a Samaritan, who was the unlikely one, turned back to go and give thanks to Jesus. And Jesus acknowledged that. It was the Gentile. It's the Gentile who showed a heart of praise. All ten of them stepped out in faith because there was no guarantee of healing. Only one of them recognized Christ for his healing. The other ten, the other nine were absorbed completely in practices. Now, that's a distinction there between those who know about God, all the practices, the sacraments, the theology, the theory, but they don't know God personally. 
Their heads are full of things of God, but their hearts are far from him. It's important to know the command that Jesus gave, go and show yourself to the priest. All ten of them obeyed it. All ten. But it was the Gentile, only one of them that showed himself to the high priest. That was Christ. Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. The implication there is that all of them received physical healing, but only one of them was transformed spiritually. Let's move on, please. So 2237, that will conclude the text. Reading from the ESV again. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God will come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here, do not go out or follow them, for as the lightning flashes and light up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came, came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let, let the one who is on the rooftop, on the housetop, with his goods in the house, not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not come back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you that in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. 37. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And that is the word of the Lord. Jesus had been preaching teaching about the kingdom of God everywhere. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has come to you. Seek first the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like this. So the Pharisees again here trying to pin him down. It's not that they believed in him. They knew that this 
man is special. There's something about him, something special, something that they couldn't find anywhere else. They knew that he could teach better than they could. They knew that he could do things that were, they were incapable of. But they were trying to find something to use against him. And they see this as being tied to the claim or the rumor that this man, Jesus, is the Messiah. When will the kingdom of God come? Show it to us. Tell us. But Jesus says it's coming in ways that can't be observed. It's not for the physical eyes. There's a Greek word for it which better translates to it's not something that you can see with a hostile examination. One of the commentators said that the kingdom of God was among them because the king was among them. Jesus is saying, I have brought the kingdom of God with me. But there's the fact that many want the kingdom of God, but they reject the king. But the heart that would reject the king must already have placed itself equal to the level, the authority, the dominion of the king. But by rejecting the king, the kingdom cannot satisfy them because you cannot separate the king from his kingdom. And therein lies the false apotheosis of man. To the disciples, he said, the days are coming when you will long for my return. And because of that longing, there are those who will seek to deceive you. But don't fall for the deception. Because when I return, there will be no mistaken. Just as there is no mistake, when we see lightning flash across the sky. But first, he must suffer. But just as in the days of Noah and Lot, when people were consumed by the desires of the world... And then the destruction came upon them suddenly. It will be just like that when Christ is revealed in his return. And the reference to the generation of Noah and Lot is that wickedness was pervasive. It was everywhere. Some were saved. Others destroyed. There was a separation. And there will be a separation But those who want to be saved must focus only on God for their salvation. Don't turn away from it. Again, the one, remember Lot's wife. She was almost there. She was almost there. She had done all the hard work. All the hard work. Almost there. And then she turned back. And Christ is saying, don't do that. Don't let anything turn you away from salvation. Don't let anything distract you. 
for that separation is coming, and Christ will make that separation as judge. That, the image we are presented with is that of the rapture. The last line, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. It's a difficult statement. And reading commentaries, quite different interpretation. It's obviously a metaphor. But in keeping with the, the text, the imagery of a corpse is that of spiritual death. And the imagery of vultures is that of feasting on things relating to spiritual death. Overall, the spiritually dead feasting, reveling, they've never had it so good. And the voices of the few, the voices of the faithful, teaching, warning, rebuking, in the name of the Lord, are few. Every form of ungodliness and rebellion against God is spiritual death. It's a pointer to the lawlessness of the end times where the ungodly will vastly outnumber the faithful. Where the corpse is there the vultures will gather. My closing point. Jesus is encouraging us to be the ones who are leading others to Christ and to Christ-likeness by not yielding to temptations and not leading others to sin. Where we can, we need to rebuke in love and forgive when asked for forgiveness. We need to be humble in service to God as his servants because the work is plentiful. We can always do more. We can always love more. We can always forgive more. But if we do not accept the king, we will not have a part in the kingdom. We can't desire the gift, yet have no recognition for the giver. We are to flee from all things that seek to shape God into figments of man's imagination. That one is quite deep one. Because those things, those people, they do not seek an acceptance of God for who he is. But you know what? They are trying to kind of reinterpret God, make him relevant to whatever century that they're in. Oh, because this is so outdated. Let, let's kind of like, you know, reinvent it. Let, let's, let's, um, let's give it a better image. Let's, you know, let's make it relevant. Yeah. You know, so that it's relevant, it's meaningful. They seek to reinterpret Christ. And some of them seek to reinterpret Paul because a part of the message is inconvenient. 
But let's remember where the teaching started from. The rich man regretting the choice he made in life. And if we do not accept Christ as king, there is only the judgment of God. There is no other choice. It's not one where you could have a third way, as they say in politics. There is no third way. The journey to the kingdom of God is such that we must not let ourselves be distracted by worldliness, ungodliness, and all things that are of spiritual death. My final points are this, that let's remember that what we do in this life matters for eternity. And the honest truth is that nobody knows how many more times that they will hear the gospel. For any unrepentant sin, tomorrow may be too late. If someone has wronged us and we're withholding forgiveness from them, Tomorrow may be too late. We are to seek repentance and forgive all those who have sought forgiveness because tomorrow may be too late. Just as Christ ended with that cryptic verse or sentence, I will end with this. Where there is resurrection and the life, there those who believe in Christ will be. They will partake in the new eternal kingdom with Christ right now and also when all has been recreated. And the biggest question is, will you be there with Christ? Or will you be with the spiritually dead in hell? just like the rich man in the previous chapter, regretting the decisions that you have made. Because there are no other choices. None. It's a very challenging text. And it's one that we need to dwell on, meditate on. We're thankful for the time to go through the book of Luke. So this is chapter 17. If anyone needs prayer, okay, and their wives as well. Actually, yeah. No, we don't actually. We have the pastors here. (laughs) We have the pastors here. And we thank God for his word. Amen. Thank you.
Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.